Welcome to the U.S.-China Insights Podcast from the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, featuring short interviews with leading experts on timely issues affecting the U.S.-China relationship. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm today joined by an American who lives in Beijing, Ben Harburg, who is the, one of the managing partners of MSA Capital which is a venture capital firm headquartered in China, uh, focusing on investing in AI, genomics, mobility, consumer internet, and SAAS. Notable portfolio companies include some of the best-known companies in all of China, Uber, well, that's a U U.S. company, Mobike, and BGI, Beijing mm -hmm. Genome Institute. Tell us, has your business been affected kind of by the downturn in U.S.-China relations? Um, we certainly have, have had an impact. I wouldn't say it's all negative, though, and I'm kind of sitting in a weird position as an American investing in China with American capital but into Chinese technology companies. So the view on our side of the pond is that this has actually been somewhat beneficial to spurring growth in core technology sectors in China, so AI, chips, quantum computing. Uh, a lot of places that we were already looking for, for transactions, our companies are now seeing a lot more um, investment, both by the private sector, venture capital firms, as well as government, um, as well as we've seen now kind of more humble entrepreneurs and uh, lower valuations as a result of the overall kind of macro negativity. So you're saying that the, the pricing has decreased mm. in China. In the private So market. it's in the private market, so it's a better time to invest. As an investor, yes. Yes. Um, What's your perspective sitting in Beijing on um, kind of U.S.-China relations and what's going on in the economic sphere? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, uh, the word that I've heard resonating a lot through this administration on the U.S. side is, the, is decoupling. Mm -hmm. And um, in China, we view decoupling as disrupting the supply chains that once linked the United States with China. So relying less on Chinese manufacturing uh, core inputs for American technologies, uh, auto parts, whatever it is that we're importing from China. Uh, and likewise, that's cutting off the link of, of materials flowing from the U.S. to China. So uh, chips, um, other key components of in mobile phones, and um, a lot of the technology that we're investing in every day, the IoT devices that we use every day. Um, and so I think the view from China is a little bit of surprise because there was a view that the relationship was working fundamentally very well and there was great benefits being uh, provided to American investors, American corporations, uh, and, and by default American people. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a lot of frustration and uncertainty uh, on the Chinese side, a feeling that perhaps um, the midterm elections would have solved something, which of course they didn't. Um, and now um, just a constant watch on the kind of touch points between um, Xi Jinping and, and President Trump, what, what kind of dialogue is coming out of those in interactions and where uh, positive spots might, might emerge. And where did the Chinese see the problem arising from? Well, I, you know, I think that's a key issue. The, the Chinese are certainly pointing their fingers this way. Um, you know, there's not a lot of self-reflection today um, regarding things like IP theft, forced technology transfer, a lot of the kind of points that, that the administration certainly has picked on as motivators for this current trade action. Um, and so I think the Chinese view this more as uh, an American attempt to kind of curb the rise of China, to 
we've seen China um, develop into a global leading economy in a, just a very short period of time. Chinese technology companies uh, racing up the Fortune 100 list. Um, and I think there's an overall view from the Chinese side that this is an attempt to slow that rise. So if, if chips aren't provided to Chinese um, man cell manufacturing companies, then they can't expand their presence as greatly. Or um, you know, if if uh, you know, we we're not, they're not able to import certain key components. Again, the technology and development locally will slow. Talk about the effect on academia and the universities in the United States. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, since um, since coming to power, it's been no um, secret that this administration wants to curb um, the numbers of foreign students, or seem to be wanting to curb the number of foreign students and workers coming into the United States. Um, the uh, the knock-on effects have been powerful. So 2017 was the first year when foreign student applications to the United States declined. Um, those students are now going elsewhere to Canada, the UK, Australia. Um, and uh, the majority of those foreign students, of course, are Chinese. Uh, it's you know, somewhere around 350,000 Chinese students coming to the U.S. every year. Um, statistics say that about 90% of them are paying full freight, um, meaning that when they come to schools that are um, near um, kind of break even, of which most academic institutions in America are today, including some of the very elite schools, um, that um, they are very much helping keep those schools in the black or near black. Um, and in many instances, they're paying double the tuition of, of, of local students, if it were like, say, at a state school. And so, um, uh, as those foreign students' numbers decline, led by the Chinese, and certainly this was exacerbated recently by threats that perhaps all Chinese students would be banned from coming to the United mm -hmm. States, there is an active movement now away from the U.S. And this is really dangerous, in my view, uh, for, for a key, couple key reasons. One, foreign students make up about 70% of graduate departments, particularly in the STEM areas, particularly engineering, computer science. Um, those uh, graduate departments then build businesses which are, whose technology is licensed and helps support those universities at a kind of a macro financial level. Uh, further, um, those uh, graduate departments spin out companies. You know, we, the statistics are clear, you know, almost half the unicorns that have been built in the technology space in America over the last few years uh, came from foreign-born individuals living in America operating largely through U.S. universities. And so, um, you know, these universities really have formed the next generation of Ellis Island uh, as a funnel for foreign talent to come into the United States, find a network, um, plug into academic research, and then build a business around that. And so uh, we risk hurting those universities through that STEM component, through the, the hurting the, the, the building of those businesses, which ultimately will employ millions of Americans and, and drive our economy forward. And then uh, most uh, worrisome for me is that uh, many of the universities that are being hardest hit by this fall in international students are those in the middle of America. These are the types of schools which, again, are very much dependent on those foreign students. And, and I've, I've read multiple reports that as those students have, have declined just in the last couple of years, budgets are being slashed. Uh, I view those state universities, particularly those non-flagship, as kind of the key onboarding mechanism for the American dream. My family uh, came through Eastern New Mexico University uh, in Portales, um, and then ultimately subsequent generations of my family were able to attend the Ivy League. Um, so I view um, the, the, the chance that those universities are damaged by this action really as in the long term harming our ability to realize the American dream. Talk a little about uh, the investment restrictions that are starting to proliferate. I remember way back when in 2005, when CNOC 
um, wanted to buy Unical and there were objections for national security grounds and ultimately Unical was sold to Chevron at a lower price. And I argued that the, I thought the national security arguments were actually not very compelling um, and that the biggest shareholder of Unical was CalPERS. Mm -hmm. So we punished uh, retired teachers in California mm -hmm. for a decision which was supposedly based on national security. So they got less money in their pension funds and have a lower retirement right. payment. But talk about what the implications today are of the, especially the restrictions on some of the Chinese unicorns, the big technology companies and who owns them. If, if you examine the cap tables, both of the existing kind of what are now blue chip um, uh, companies like Tencent, Alibaba, as well as these new entrants to the market, what you'll soon very quickly realize is the older blue chip names like Tencent, uh, their cap tables and, and largest shareholders are populated by largely U.S. asset managers, the people that are maintaining the pension plans for millions and millions of Americans of all walks of life uh, and all income levels. Um, and likewise, if you look at the cap tables of the um, largest Chinese technology unicorns, those like Meituan, uh, Pinduoduo in recent years, again, you'll see a lot of venture capital firms who have uh, raised U.S. dollars largely from U.S. endowments, foundations, and pension plans. Again, uh, you know, state pension plans across the United States, pension plans for public employees, firefighters, police, etc. All on the cap tables there, usually in the top, top two or three uh, largest positions. And so again, to kind of uh, dance on the grave, and I've, I've seen, um, you know, clips from this administration where they talked about the Chinese market being down substantially this year and that being a kind of big win for us and, and proving the impact of these trade uh, tariffs. I would take a second to look at that because in many instances you're probably damaging those endowments and pension plans substantially. You're part of the next generation and you're part of the next generation that has a pretty deep understanding of China and U.S.-China relations. What should your generation do about this downtrend? Uh, I th very few people have taken the time to get on a plane and come to China. Uh, even fewer have obviously taken time to learn Mandarin. You know, we have 8,000 students a year going from the U.S. to China, 350,000 going back this way. Um, you know, I've seen statistics close to 100,000 people across all ages and, and um, uh, from elementary school to university in the United States studying uh, Mandarin. And in, in China, there's arguably up to three, four hundred million people right now studying English. So I'm deeply concerned about our lack of knowledge about China. It's, you know, there's the, the, the common uh, um, refrain is that you, you fear what you don't know. And so I'd encourage people to get on a plane, come to Beijing, come to Shanghai, and, and view the rapid technical uh, technological evolution that's gone. Come, come see how in a, in a McDonald's in China you can only pay with your mobile phone or your face because of biometric payment. Um, you know, take a taxi where you can only pay with mobile payments. Um, you know, come watch, as you saw today, uh, AI-enabled newsreaders and things like that. You, I think people will be shocked by how far advanced China is in many ways compared to the U.S. And I think it would not only spur people to develop things more quickly around here, but also understand that largely the rise of China has benefited our technology companies, our universities, um, and our average citizens. I think that is a perfect note to close on. Thank you so much for joining us from Beijing today. We Thanks appreciate it.